Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, as always, for our opportunity to gather, even when things seem to be in the way, whether technical or medical or whatever ways in which we might be inhibited from being in your word and being under your care, Father. Nonetheless, you find ways around any, any barrier, Father, for you know that this is where you want us to be, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you, Father, that uh, we've been given so much in your word. Thank you that in this day and age, uh, when so many are being misled, Father, that you are yet still working to bring your word to the world. And I praise you, Father, for that, that it came to each of us. Thank you, Father, for the book of Second Samuel, for the story of David and all that we're learning through his life. A man, Father, who accomplished much, but Father is also a man, Father, who reminds us that uh, we can stumble easily if we're not always mindful of where you're leading us and of following you. So I ask, Father, we learn from both his good and his poor examples wherever they happen, Father. And I ask also that you would show us how to lead our own life by example for others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to cover the last chapter now tonight in a section, a summary section that I told you about a few weeks back. This is the early part of this book from chapters 5 through chapter Uh, 8, where the writer of this book has been examining David's impact on the nation of Israel, his successes, and how they blessed himself, how they blessed the people as a whole. And we started in chapter 5 in this section, the writer showing us the magnitude of his his impact. They had previously been a nation that was small, it was weak, it was persecuted from every side, surrounded by enemies, and now David is moving them to the place of uh, true superpower in their day. And it's a result of God anointing David, calling David, placing David into a position of power as king, and then blessing David as he follows the Lord in that way. All of these blessings have come primarily in three or four forms, which is what we've studied. David's family was blessed, and his wealth was was increased. The nation's military, economic, and religious strength all increased. And we've watched now in the series of chapters we've studied as the writer has moved between those various kinds of blessing and uh, David's impact on each of them. You know, he had to move the capital to Jerusalem. He brought uh, the ark in. He fathered many sons. He uh, has expanded the borders of the nation and so on and so forth. These are the things we've been learning. Last week, we studied the moment that the Lord blessed David and his people uh, in a way that will extend beyond the lifetime of David looking at the Davidic covenant, establishing for David this permanent dynasty that will one day culminate in Christ sitting on the throne in the kingdom. And that kingdom is still very far away from David's time, and it it is still yet to come, of course, for us. Uh, But in the midst of knowing of this, David is overwhelmed by the grace of God, and he expresses that. That's how we ended chapter 7 last week. So we only have one more chapter now in this upfront summary of his good accomplishments, this final chapter in this section. We go into tonight, chapter 8, and it comes back to a theme we started in when we looked at chapter 5, which is David's military success. So the writer has hopped around to different topics. He's coming back now to the topic of David's military success. And we're going to start with a description of a series of conquests. Most, if not all, of these happened very early in David's reign, uh, which is, again, moving us back to the beginning of his story in terms of chronology. Let's go to chapter 8, and we'll read in verse 1. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Now, I mentioned at the start of this section, back in chapter 5, that this summary section, as I keep referring to it, 
uh, is looking at David's impact on the nation as a king. And as such, it's organized topically. So the writer has moved between how David affected Israel economically, religiously, and militarily, and now he's back to the military topic. But because it's organized in that way, it's not chronological. He's pulled things together from the 40 years of David's time as king and pulled them together, all the high points, all the successes, all the major impacts, and he's laid them out here over these last four chapters, chapters five through eight. And last week in chapter seven, you saw an event that took place very near the end of that 40 years when David finds out that the Davidic covenant would be established and he would have a, a, a chance to see his family line go on into the kingdom through Christ. Now, when we saw that in chapter seven, where was David? He was in the palace. He was wealthy. In fact, there's a comment in the chapter that says that this is after all his enemies had been put away. So we know that comes near the end of his time as king. Now, in this chapter, the writer's going back to the beginning, to David's reign uh, when it began and how he defeated all those enemies that we just heard in chapter seven had been defeated. So don't let that confuse you. In fact, that's one of the problems with 2 Samuel is that the writer is not trying to present a chronological history of one man's life. He's trying to tell a bigger story about how the, the arrival of David as king changed the future of Israel. That means he has a different intention, which means he organizes his book accordingly. And the opening of verse one is somewhat confusing in regard to this whole you know, conversation about chronology because you notice it begins in verse one, now after this which would seem to indicate that this is after the events of chapter seven. But go back and look at the opening verse of chapter seven, and that chapter begins specifically saying this is after David has defeated his enemies. Well, I mean, it's one or the other. This is the chapter that explains how he defeated the enemies, so this can't happen after the chapter that is after he's defeated his enemies. All right, so what are we learning? Well, what we're learning is the writer's not worth uh, referring back to the prior chapter. Remember, this book didn't have chapters when it was written originally. He's referring back to the last time he talked about this topic. And the last time he talked about the military topic was in chapter five. And if you look at the last verse of chapter five, it goes this way. Then David did so just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Hold that thought in your mind. Now, read the first verse of chapter eight again. Now, after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. So he's, he's just continuing the military theme within the larger structure of his book. He's not talking chronologically with chapter seven. All right, so the writer now has doubled back to the topic of military victories, picking up where he left off at the end of chapter five, with the Philistines now having been defeated. That brings up our first map for the night. Now this uh, hopefully is not too hard to see, and again, I'm standing in front of it, but in future weeks, I won't be. So for now, you can live with it one more night. Each of those little areas up there we'll talk about here in turn. So David's military conquest begins with the Philistines, which, as you see there, the Philistines occupied the coastal plain on the west side of the nation of Israel. And he has taken control, it says here, of their greatest city, which was Gath. He, that means he is now the undisputed leader over this section of land where before they had always battled against the Philistines for it. That is no small thing in the history of this nation. The land of Canaan had largely been under Egyptian rule for the better part of the last 500 years. And as Egyptian control of Canaan began to wane, it was the Philistines that exerted their power in a hope to fill that vacuum. So they were the heir apparent to Egypt for control of the region. The Philistines were a very powerful warring culture. They had a very strong military. They were very hard to beat. So David now has defeated the Philistines, which means there really is no rival for Canaan. Now these other regions that you see colored up there, those are not part of Canaan. Those are enemies outside of Canaan that bordered Israel. The one enemy Israel had within its own borders with the Philistines, they're gone, and that now means that this land is undisputed territory for Israel for the first time now since Israel has been in the land. And that means they're now a superpower as well. And in, in relative terms, that is, they've displaced Egypt, they've displaced the Philistines. And that, that's only gonna grow now. 
So the first thing we learn is the western border of Israel is now free of enemies. And then from here, the writer is now going to describe additional campaigns that take place in each of the other cardinal directions. First east, then north, then south. The point being, of course, when you're at the end of all this, no enemies west, east, north, or south of Israel after David is done. You see the Philistines already gone in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he moves to describing the battle with the Moabites. So Moab is down here. David defeats the Moabites, it says, and then after he finishes the battle with him, he uses an unusual method of determining who he's going to let live and who he is going to execute. He says here that the men of Moab are lying on the ground, told to lie on the ground, and then he talks here about lines. Now, your version, if you've read commentaries on this, the commentaries, I think, go in the wrong direction. They miss the point. It's not like a line of men lying on the ground, just a whole long line of them and then a whole other long line of them. That doesn't make any sense. No, David had them lie on the ground and measure them according to the height of each man by the measurement of a line, some undetermined length. We don't know what it was. Those who were measured one line in length, in height, on the ground, were allowed to live, while those that measured more than one line, that is two lines, were put to death. And the point of that, of course, is young boys lived. Fully grown men didn't. And those that were left alive became servants of David, subjects of his kingdom. And as they grew up and you know, worked the land as uh, subjects, they would pay tribute to David. Now, as you hear this for just a moment, you might think, well, that's kind of cruel. Why did he do that? That seemed unnecessary. Um, you need to see it in light of the customs of warfare in that day. Customarily, a defeated enemy was entirely wiped out. Nobody was left alive because you didn't want any kind of re- recurrence of threat. The defeated nation was eradicated, so they could never again uh, pose any danger to the victors. So in allowing young men to live, David is showing unusual restraint and kindness toward Moab. And if you're thinking, well, he should have just let them all live, you don't understand how geopolitical uh, warfare works. (laughs) If you are in that time and you just defeat them, and then you say, okay, guys, that was good. Go back to your houses. Please, let's, let's not do this again. You will do it again. The only way to stop warfare is to put away the threat, and that is, in this case, by removing the capacity for warfare, and there is no other way to do it. Now, in modern times, we have you know, weapons of war strong enough to deter an attack. That, back then, it was a man and a stick and a sword. That's it, and you didn't, defer, you didn't deter that except by having more people than the other army did. So you remove the warriors, and you make them in, impotent when it comes to warfare. So... David has done something quite unusual here in letting anyone live because this is a risky move. Uh, I mean, young men grow up to be bigger men and they'll remember what you did to their dad. So this is opening a possibility of a future conflict with the Moabites. The only reason we could understand for why David did this is because his grandmother, who very well may still have been alive at this point, was Ruth, a Moabitess. Anyway, in verses 3 through 11, we're told of David's victories in the north against the king of Zobah and Aram, or Aram. It started with David defeating Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. Now, Zobah's not on this map. It's off the map. I'm just putting the name up there in the top right corner to make the point. But it's uh, quite a bit north of this map. If I had made the map big enough to see it, you wouldn't have been able to see any of the other stuff. So I just marked it there. His name, Hadadezer, Dezer means help, and Hadab is the name of the chief god of the Arameans. So, uh, you know, this god was his help, was his title. But after defeating him, David makes a point of dismantling this guy's ability to wage war as well. We're told in verse 4, David captures 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. But if you look at 1 Chronicles 18, which is the chapter in 1 Chronicles that dovetails with this one, tells the same story again. That version of this story says it was not 1,700 horsemen, it was 7,000 horsemen, and on top of that, 1,000 chariots. Uh, because you have First Chronicles 18, you can know that the text here in Second Samuel chapter 8 was not copied correctly. A copyist error happened at some point, and as they were copying the text of Scripture from one copy to the next, they got the number wrong here. The actual number was First Chronicles 18. Chapter 18, 7,000 horsemen with 1,000 chariots. 
uh, you, you would not expect to see uh, only 1,700 horsemen if there were 1,000 chariots. It doesn't make any sense. So we would expect to see at least, and, and on top of that, they had you know, some number of horsemen on individual horses. So it makes much more sense to think that the number was 7,000. So that's what we would expect here. Um, meanwhile, David hamstrung, it says, those horses. That just means he cut the tendons in their legs. In our case, our hamstring runs from the back of our th- uh, thigh from hip to, to knee. Horses' anatomy is different, but it's in the same general region on the back of their legs. And when you cut that tendon, you make the animal lame. And as a result, it can never again be used to carry a man or be used in war. It doesn't necessarily die. It can live in this condition. It just can't go very far or do very much. So once more, this is a sign of restraint. He could have killed 7,000 horses, but he doesn't. He leaves them alive. He just, to make sure they can't be useful again, like taking the, the firing pin out of a rifle. It's just not useful anymore for war. And as David was engaged in this battle with Hadadezer, we're told in verse 5 that Hadadezer looks at one of his allies, Aram, or Aram, and calls for that country to come help him in the battle with David. Now, Aram is a long-standing negative influence on Israel, going back to the time of Judges. In the time of Judges, we're told that Israel followed after some of the idols of this country. And so when they align with the king of Zobah, it just gives David an opportunity to get a two-for-one. So he defeats Aram as well, killing 22,000 Arameans, which was probably their entire standing army. And then David's uh, stationing garrisons of Jewish soldiers in these places he's defeating. So if you look on the map again, these regions on the eastern side, they're not part of Israel. They are vassals. After they are defeated, David is putting garrisons there to occupy territory that is not part of Israel proper, and then they pay tribute. So he's doing to them what later countries like Babylon does to Israel. Occupy them, make them pay tribute, but leave them to themselves in the meantime and disable their warfare. So he's done that now with uh, Moab, and he's now moving into doing it with Aram, or the Arameans in the north. And we're told in verse six, they too become servants of David, and they bring tribute to David. Now at this point, at the end of what I read, the writer felt the need to emphasize that these amazing military victories were the evidence of God helping David, which should be obvious. His point is, if you had read this without that little editorial comment, you might wonder, is this even possible? How does, how does this guy just win against all these major powers, left and right? Every time he engages in battle now, it's a wipeout for, the, for his, his side. Um, the only answer, of course, is the Lord is bringing about these victories. Wherever he went, the Lord was there. David couldn't lose right now. But in this process, the Lord is producing a picture of Jesus because uh, in what God does through Israel in the kingdom, you see almost exactly this same outcome in eternal terms. When the kingdom comes on earth, when Christ returns at his second coming, when he sets up the kingdom headquartered in Jerusalem, the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, but especially Ezekiel, tells us a lot about what this region of the world will be like in the time of the kingdom. Israel will see its borders uh, enlarged to the, pl- to the dimensions God gave Israel originally when he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he talked to Joshua. That will uh, extend well up into the north and into the south, but it still leaves some of the regions, particularly on the eastern side, unoccupied. These nations you see lining here on the east side, many of them are either vassals of Israel during the kingdom They're occupied by Gentiles, Gentile believers at the outset, but those countries serve Israel. Or they're empty in the case of Edom. Edom is a wasteland where not a single person nor even a single animal will set foot in Edom for the whole of the thousand-year kingdom as a judgment. So there's there's a whole bunch more if you're interested in that. Go listen to the Ezekiel study. But let me just read you a passage out of Deuteronomy which forecasts or foretells this outcome in general terms. Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Speaking of the regathering of Israel in preparation for the kingdom. Verse 5. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your forefathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. 
Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies, on those who hate you, who persecuted you. So the promise is not only to bring Israel back and to give them everything that's been promised, notice, and to prosper them even more than your fathers, meaning even more than what happened under David. And on top of that, I will, he says, I will inflict curses on your enemies. That is, those nations which had traditionally been Israel's enemies will be marked out for treatment in the kingdom that designates them as enemies. Now, keep in mind, we're not saying the people that are there will be punished. They're believers. They're in the kingdom. They're not going to be punished. But the, the purpose of the nation on the map will be set aside in a way that is specific to making a memorial out of how they persecuted Israel in times past. Again, if you're more interested in that or interested in that some more, go look at the book of Ezekiel online. We get into that in great detail. All right, so in David's day, what, he, what is he doing right now? He is effectively giving you a picture or what I called last week a suggested fulfillment of what will come in the kingdom. On a smaller scale, he is doing here what Jesus does in a large scale permanently in the kingdom by defeating all of these enemies. All right, let's go back to the text, verse 7. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Betah, Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toai. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So just briefly, not only did he get the military success, but He's blessed with wealth, the spoil of war. Each of these victories yielded something of value, like Hedadezer, it says gold shields, now probably not solid gold, that have been too heavy, but embossed or gilded. The cities of Hadadezer also provided a lot of bronze, and then other nations sent David wealth as a tribute. You have this guy, Toi of Hamath. He was an enemy of, of um, Aram, and it's up in the north too. This is basically Hamath. And... He's so happy that his enemy's gone, he sends David gold, silver, bronze. Uh, That gift probably came as part of a covenant agreement, which may have then established a peace between David and Hamath, although later in the the course of David's time, the area of Hamath actually came under uh, tribute requirement as well. This may have been how that got established. Then in verses 11 and 12, it says David takes all of what he received and dedicates it to the Lord. And what this probably means... Is, and this is why we know this chapter, another reason we know this chapter happened earlier than chapter seven, because it indicates David was setting aside things to build the temple. He's thinking about it. So he's setting things aside, and it was only later that David got told by Nathan, now, don't bother. Now, it may have still sat and waited for Solomon, but in any event, he's thinking about it. Also, um, there are events coming up in chapters 10 through 12, which we're gonna study next, obviously. They have to do with Bathsheba, but they happen in the context of a battle against the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites were defeated in the same period here, but it's not covered here. Again, chronologically, it's separated out because the story of Bathsheba is so important. We'll look at that later. So the tendency here to move around in time for anyone who's reading this book uh, just makes this a little trickier, but we'll keep looking for the opportunity to explain it whenever we can. All right, verse 13. David makes a name for himself. He's done all these great things. Verse 13 says, So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. All right, so now we have the south, Moab. Or, I'm sorry, Edom, in the very far south. And when David was fighting in the north, when he was up fighting Aram, the Edomites in the south thought they could make an opportunity out of this. They invade Israel when he's up in the north. Now, before we explain what happened, there is another copyist error here. And again, we discover it because we compare this chapter to 1 Chronicles chapter 18. Let me read you what's in 1 Chronicles 18, verse 12. Now, as I'm reading this, compare it to what's written in 13 and 14 here. 
Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zariah, defeated 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. All right, so here's what we know happened. David was fighting Arameans in the north, where he killed 22,000 Arameans, according to verse 5. Meanwhile, in the Valley of Salt, in this, which, by the way, is near the Dead Sea, that shouldn't be easy to guess, right? Down in the south by the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is right here. So he's down here fighting in the Valley of Salt. This is uh, not David now, but David's commander, Abishai. And he kills 18,000 invading Edomites. Once he's defeated them, he puts a garrison of Jewish soldiers there, like you see David doing elsewhere. And now they have subdued a long-time enemy. I mean, Edom as an enemy goes all the way back to who? Esau. Esau founded Edom, right? Goes back to Jacob and Esau. Once again, a remarkable victory. It shows David is present. Now, back to the error for a moment. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 8 said that David killed 18,000 Arameans. But we know that's not what he did. He killed 22,000 Arameans. And Arameans are not in the south. They're in the north. 1 Chronicles 18 tells us, no, Abishai killed 18,000, but it was 18,000 Edomites. Well, that makes perfect sense because Edom is in the south. So... What we know is David was killing Arameans in the north, and in the south, 18,000 Edomites died in the Valley of Salt. But when you see the two juxtaposed like this, you realize what the copyists did. They inadvertently ran those two thoughts together at some point and combined 18,000 with David fighting Arameans and put the two together in that verse. And as you study through First and Second Samuel, you'll find that of those two books, and remember originally they were just one book, Samuel, uh, of all the books of the Bible, probably, and certainly of the Old Testament, Samuel has more copyist errors than any other book in the Bible. And that fact reinforces your trust in Scripture. Now, if you're wondering why, it's because it highlights the degree of precision that we have in the manuscripts that we possess today. That the Scriptures are so meticulously preserved, going back you know, to the beginning, that even a small difference like this catches our attention. And the Lord then has provided a way for us to know that the error is there and to find the truth by giving us the comparable text in First Chronicles so that even when errors are introduced, like you see right here, they only serve to reinforce your trust in what you know about the text. Because when someone tells you, we don't know if the Bible can be trusted, we don't know if it's changed, it's probably changed a thousand times, they're just showing their ignorance when they say that. Because the Bible has been so carefully preserved throughout history, so scrupulously compared from copy to copy, so that even when a word gets changed, it stands out like a sore thumb and everybody starts trying to figure out why. And yet, we're so true to what we have and so unwilling to change it that when a copyist makes an inadvertent error, no one would dare go back and correct it again. And that itself tells you how much respect people have given throughout centuries of time to the accuracy of what's in the text. Not even little words get changed unless by accident, and then we find the error by comparing it to the thousands of other copies that exist, and we rectify it. Only in rare cases, as in these, does some difference kind of slip through and become permanent in the way the text is copied. And even then, the Lord in his sovereignty makes sure that there is some other way available to us to see that error as we did tonight. And then, of course, on top of all of that, whatever errors we have found, they're so minor, as in this case. They do absolutely nothing to change the general meaning of the text, much less any doctrine or meaningful uh, beliefs in our, in our faith. So the point is this. If that is proof to someone that they cannot trust this text, they have no business reading anything of ancient work from any source ever, because of all of those, whether it's Plato or Aristotle or anyone else, these are by far the most uh, scrupulously preserved ancient text in the world. And the numbers of copies we have number into the tens of thousands, such that if any one individual one is off, we can see that easily by comparing it to others. So anyway, it's just interesting how somebody can make a little error into a big thing when the reality is the other way around. It's showing us just how much we can trust the text. All right, so back to the point. David subdued north, uh, south, east, and west. Uh, he's put garrisons in every direction. As I said, the only major enemy that's not mentioned in this chapter uh, would be the 
Ammonites, and the Ammonites are not mentioned here because they're part of the story about Sheba. So you get three chapters on them as backdrop, if you will, to chapters 10 through 12. All right. Clearly, this is a new age for Israel. They are at a time when they've cast off fear, oppression, weakness. They have no enemies. They are living in a time of carefree living. They've got wealth. They've got protection. David's at a high point in his career, if you will. This is, this is the pinnacle of Israel, something similar to what we know will come in the kingdom, although clearly not as majestic. And then we get to verse 14. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok and the son of Ahutub and Abimelech and the son of Abiathar were priests. And Shavshah was the secretary. And Beniah and the son of Jehodah was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And the sons of David were chiefs at the king's side. All right, so with all those names, you see essentially an overview of his administration, of who's leading at this point in the government. Uh, I'm not going to go through them all, but verse 15, we're told he reigned and administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That is a very ambitious statement, and you've got to wonder, how true could that possibly be? Well, clearly there is not total righteousness. Total justice is not there yet. It's really just an allusion to the kingdom again. David's rule was suggesting the kingdom in that regard, where Jesus will only be the one to bring true righteousness and justice. Later in Isaiah's prophecy, he actually connects these two thoughts for us. In Isaiah 9, 6, he says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. All right, we know that from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness and from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So Isaiah says when Jesus comes, his government will have the same things we're hearing that David's had. In fact, Isaiah says he will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom, but he says it will be going on forevermore. So David is a minor version of what God is bringing through Jesus in a future day. And the Lord has worked through David to bring about this picture. All right, finally, and this is where we end with in this chapter, the leaders and their areas of responsibility. Uh, You notice he has Joab, the guy that was the first to enter into Jerusalem and got the prize of being the commander of the army. He's in that job. Then you have uh, David has a secretary, records the events. He has a private security guard. You notice the Sherethites and the Pelethites, they are Gentiles. In fact, those are two terms that both refer to people who come from Crete, which is where Philistines came from. So more than likely, David hired Philistines. Remember how good they were at warring? He took advantage of that. He made them his own security guard. Why not use Jews? Well, because if you're going to be worried about your security, most likely the threat is someone inside, another Jew trying to take over your, your, your throne. Well, you don't want Jews to persuade other Jews to be on their side instead of on your side. You have Gentiles who couldn't care less who, which Jew is in place. They just want someone to pay them. That's the, the one David hired as his security guards. No stake in the fighting, that is. And now David has refashioned the entire nation and... If you look at the contrast going back to 1 Samuel, you have uh, this remarkable turn. Saul's rebellion and failure has turned to David's obedience and success. And all the nations that were uh, you know, vexing Israel under Saul, they've all been defeated. The ark's returned, the land's expanded, the city uh, of Jerusalem has been established. There's really nothing you can't compare that's just 180 degrees in 40 years. Complete turnaround. And the sense you're left with as you reach the end of this chapter is there's nowhere left to go but down, right? How can you get any higher than this? How could anything more happen, at least till the Messiah came? That's the writer's intent. He has cherry-picked all the best moments in David's life, and he has lined them all out in a way that at the end of chapter 8, if you could have just put an end to the book there, you basically have the kingdom in small form. And what he does now with the rest of the book is the opposite, Now let's talk about all the things David didn't do so well. And if the book has 24 chapters, and we're in chapter 9, okay, you can see where the emphasis of the book goes. Not that David's a bad character, of course, but that the book really wanted you to understand more 
how the bad things happened than to dive into great detail on how the good things happened. He summarizes the good things and then he explores the bad things so that we can understand them. And in some ways you could say David's story parallels the story of Saul in that regard because remember from 1 Samuel, the start of that book is Saul just just racking up victory after victory and uh, doing what he's supposed to and then it just all goes off the rails and the second half of the book is terrible. Well, in this case, Saul's achievements were never as great as David's achievements, nor will David's troubles be nearly as great as Saul's troubles, but the pattern is still the same. And I think that's a general pattern for every believer, by the way. That is, the story of our troubles define us far more than the story of our successes as we walk with Jesus. And you, you you may have some victorious, glorious Uh, uh, accomplishments in your walk with Jesus but the things that echo louder are the stumbles and which is why we want to guard against those so much I'd rather be a person who never stumbled than one that achieved a lot because if you had to pick between the two uh, you know there's going to be a lot of stumbles with anyone even if they have victories all right the first of these chapters that I'm talking about now chapter nine will read a bit like an odd choice as the opening chapter on the section of David's stumbles because it actually tells the story of David's faithfulness in and of itself. In fact, Chuck Swindoll called this chapter the greatest illustration of grace in the Old Testament. But as you see later, as we get deeper into the book of 2 Samuel, you're going to find out that this actually reflected David's weaknesses in part in the way he liked to seek approval from Saul's allies. And that tendency gets him into trouble. This chapter lays the groundwork for problems that come later with David. And that's why it's in the second half of this book. We're going to study the impact later. For now, let's just understand what he does here in faithfulness. And that begins in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, before we go deeper into this, let's understand what's going on and why that question is on David's mind. Because of what's happening in this chapter, we can safely date this chapter to very early again. So in about the same time frame as all of these military campaigns, right after David consolidated power and defeated um, uh, his father, Ishbosheth, and Meshibosheth, um, I can't do this all day, can I? <laughs> Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth, uh, when he defeated Ishbosheth, remember he had a, a son. Jonathan had a son called Mephibosheth. So David has defeated the king in the north. He's consolidated power. And he has got the loyalty now of all 12 tribes. And he asks this question, is there still anyone left out there in Saul's line that I can show kindness? And he's thinking back to the covenant he established with Jonathan, where he promised that to Jonathan. They entered into a covenant back when he was still with Saul. And David was under attack from Jonathan's father, from Saul. And Jonathan, if you remember, was the heir to the throne. He was the son who would get the throne. And so rather than contend with David over the chance to rule for the seat of power, Jonathan decides, I'm just going to give my loyalty to you, David, because I know you're the anointed replacement for my father. And so they entered into a covenant. This is, where they, this is what they said back in 1 Samuel 18.1. It came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul Uh, took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. All right, that's the moment the the covenant got established. Right after David got taken into the uh, care of Saul from his family, from Jesse, when Saul said, you're going to come live with me, David. At that point, as Jonathan got to know David, something sparked in Jonathan. He realized this man is somebody special to God and therefore special to me, and I want to show my love in return to this man by giving him my allegiance, which was essentially choosing his own replacement. And that's all you hear about in 1 Samuel 18. But there are some promises in this covenant that don't come out until later. A couple chapters later, you find out the detail of what they actually bound each other to. In 1 Samuel twenty twelve. Now, what's happened between these two chapters? Saul's gone off the rails and started trying to kill David. So by chapter 20, you read this. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, oh, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. 
And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. So what Jonathan does there is he elaborates on that covenant. He says to David, I want you to reaffirm this covenant and here are some new terms or here are some additional terms. And the agreement goes as this. Jonathan will help David remain alive despite the fact that Saul wants to kill him. And he'll do so by essentially agreeing to be a spy for David. I'll let you know what my father's going to do. And if my father intends to hurt you, I'll warn you so you can get out of the way early. He is taking a real risk as he does this. He is basically becoming a traitor to his own father, which could put him in danger of being killed by his dad if his dad ever found out that he was helping his enemy. And in return, what Jonathan asked David to do is to preserve his own life, don't kill me, which would have been the natural thing to do, by the way, for a new dynasty to come into power. They'd remove everyone who had any rivalry to that, right? So he's saying, look, when you become a king, don't kill me. And that enough was significant, but Jonathan wants to go a step further in verse 15. He asked that David not cut off anyone in Saul's household, even after David takes full control. Now, think about that for a minute. Hypothetically, what if all of Saul's sons had survived? David would have been obligated to leave the entire family of Saul's sons, all of them rivals, all of them potentially someone who would try to take the throne away. David is obligating himself to leave all of those enemies alive. And, I mean, Jonathan's request is bold, to say the least, but David chooses to agree to it. He enters into the covenant, so now he's bound to keep this agreement. We know from what took place after this, of course, that Saul dies and all his sons die before David assumes the throne, Uh, the last of those being Ishbosheth, who was in the north and died at the beginning of this book. Uh, And the fact that God takes out Saul and all the sons before David has a chance to keep his word on this agreement would seem to suggest God did not want David to enter into this agreement, not under those terms. And I would think it's reasonable to assume that David did so wrongly in the first place. That is, the Lord did not want anyone competing with David for the throne. It had no purpose in God's economy that Saul's sons be left alive. If anything, history would record God wanted the line of Saul to end, categorically. And that's probably why chapter 9 is placed squarely in the section of David's troubles. Because David has bound himself now to an agreement he didn't need. He didn't need, God was not going to let David die if he didn't have this agreement from Jonathan. They didn't have to give these terms. But now that David has reached full authority, he has to keep his word. So he remembers the words he spoke to Jonathan, and he says, you know, I know that Ishbosheth is gone. I know Jonathan's gone. I know, is there anybody else? Is there anybody I've overlooked? And uh, David asked the court for anyone, and in verse 2, he gets his answer. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel in Lodabah. So a servant, a guy named Ziba, reports, yeah, you got one remaining male heir in the house of Saul. He was a son of Jonathan. He quickly adds, oh, but he was you know, lame in both feet. The point being, you don't need to worry about this guy. He'll never be king. He's not a rival. And the thought must have been in Ziba's mind that he's looking to kill anyone out there who might have had any hope to claim the throne. And Ziba's trying to make sure that David understands sympathetically this isn't a guy you need to worry about. We studied this kid, this cripple, Back in chapter 4, remember we had one verse on this guy, 2 Samuel, and I'm using cripple in the term of the biblical term, lame or cripple is the biblical term. So 2 Samuel 4, 4, we studied this a while back. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. 
So this is the son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, the only male heir of Saul that's still alive. His name literally means the dispeller of shame or cutting shame into pieces would be another way to translate it. We learned that this guy gets the condition that he has because he was dropped as a baby during a flight of the nurse and so on. And so his lifelong affliction now has ruled him out as any potential heir in the way that men were seen in that day. A man of this sort would never have been given the right to rule. No one would have wanted to follow him. He couldn't lead in battle. He didn't have the strength to defend himself. It wasn't uh, becoming of a king to look and act like this. And now by dating in the Bible, he's about 20. So he's 20 years old. David doesn't even know he exists. And as David hears about this guy, the opportunity to do something to keep his word to Jonathan comes to David's mind. Even though this man cannot threaten David in his rule, that's not David's interest. It's the other way around. David wants to be faithful. And so he calls for Mephibosheth to be brought to him. Verse five. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here's your servant. So imagine what this guy is thinking. He's more or less been in hiding, and he hears that his grandfather's rival, who's now on the throne, uh, the guy who replaced his uncle in the north, is calling for him. You can safely assume that he thought the worst. I mean, what, what else would he think? So he's assuming, I'm being called to the king to be killed. He goes to the palace expecting this, He goes in and falls down on his face before David, prostrate, and David calls him by name, Mephibosheth. And that might have been a surprise. He probably didn't expect that. And so he answers, he says, I'm your servant. He's doing everything he can to show David, I'm not here to contend with you over the throne. I'm I'm under your authority. And David already knew all that. But David, as I said, has not called him here to test his loyalty. David is coming to show his loyalty to Mephibosheth, verse seven. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Completely confusing this man. David tells Mephibosheth, you have nothing to fear here. I have called you in to show you my kindness, that is my kindness to uh, Jonathan. My kindness to Jonathan is required for you in this case. And David says, from this point forward, you're eating at my table. And to eat with someone at their table in that day, the culture of that day, made that a a move of significance. Uh, You know, a table was a place of fellowship, privilege. Uh, It implied your protection. Covenants were usually established in the context of eating a meal with the person that you established a covenant with. And you don't eat with enemies, you eat with friends. That's the idea. And if you eat at the king's table, that was of high privilege in the kingdom because it meant that you were a friend with the king. And being a friend of the king was not a small matter. Uh, What's ironic about this moment is David had exactly the same privilege with Saul. He was invited into Saul's house to eat at the king's table in Saul's case, but that just became an opportunity for Saul to be faithless, and at a certain point, it, it almost put David's life in jeopardy. Remember, Saul starts chucking spears at him at the dinner table. So David's uh, position here is exactly the opposite is what, of what Saul's would be under the same circumstances. Saul grew jealous of David, treated David as an enemy, even though he was a friend and a servant. David ends up almost losing his life, trying to eat with Saul. Now he's doing the opposite. He's taking a man who thought he was an enemy and making him a friend, a man who had no reason to think he'd be at the table, and he's saying, you will dine with me continually. Now you want to ask, well, why is David going to all this trouble? Well, clearly, Mephibosheth has done nothing to deserve it. I mean, he, he didn't even know the guy existed. Uh, the decision for Mephibosheth is also non-existent. David never asked Mephibosheth, do you want this arrangement? Mephibosheth is called out of nothing, out of nowhere, and put into the king's presence and told, you're now here to stay. That's all. Mephibosheth got nothing more than that. He is there by the Lord's choice, by the king's choice in this case. Obviously, Mephibosheth knows that he's receiving something he shouldn't have received or didn't have any reason to expect. And his rhetorical question reflects that. He says, why are you showing a regard 
for a dead dog like me. Now, in Jewish eyes, a dog was the worst creature you could possibly have. Um, the worst insult you could call someone in that day was poodle. And so that was the lowest status. And he, being a crippled man, must have seen himself in that way. He's not a Gentile, he's a Jew, so he's not using it in the way Gentiles or Jews often did by referring to Gentiles as dogs. He's thinking of it more in the sense of a dog is uh, the lowest in society and I'm a, a man who's, by virtue of my crippled nature, I'm the lowest one in society. But more than that, he's an enemy, potentially, to David. He's a rival. And that means he's worse than useless. You know, he's useless, crippled, Dogs are useless to Jews, but he is a dead dog, worse than useless because he's also an enemy potentially. David is showing this guy grace. That's what grace looks like, undeserved favor, giving somebody something they did not deserve, and I should add, did not expect, did not expect. Even a situation in which you say, I'm not getting this for anything I've done, but I have said the right words, made the right move, followed the right instructions, so therefore I should get the required result at the end. That is still putting some measure of you into the process, isn't it? Mephibosheth didn't even know this was going to happen, much less anybody ask him. It just came into his lap. That's what grace is. Grace is the receiving of something before you even know it. Before it's something you even act on in any form. Before you consider it. That's grace. Undeserved favor. And that does not mean it is happening without cause, however. Because David is obligated to do this. There is a cause driving this, but the cause is not in Mephibosheth or in anything he has ever done or said. David is obligated to do this for Mephibosheth because of his own word. His own word obligates him to this path, but it is without regard to Mephibosheth whatsoever. David never made any promises to Mephibosheth. He's not in covenant with Mephibosheth. The covenant was with somebody else who's no longer even around, but the beneficiary is Mephibosheth. And that promise was to show, what we read earlier, is to show loving kindness to Jonathan's house. Now, you've probably read that word and seen it before, loving kindness, right? And if you don't understand it properly, you might not realize it's a technical term in Scripture. It is not just a general way of saying being nice, being loving. No, it's, it's the English translation of a specific Hebrew word for which we didn't have a very good translation, a very appropriate English word, so we invented the word loving kindness as a translation necessity in order to make sure you understand this is a different word than loving or kindness. It's a separate idea. It is a covenantial term. It is a word that is used only in respect to covenants. It is how the Lord describes his own character of keeping covenants. He says in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I want to focus on the first half of that where the word is for our sake tonight because that's the important part for us here. The Lord is telling Moses and the people of Israel, I'm a God who is abounding in loving kindness. And again, in a technical sense, he's saying, I'm in a God who abounds in keeping covenants, in doing what I say I'm going to do for the sake of someone. But it's especially in the sense of a suzerainty covenant, the idea that a, a superior grants something to a lesser without regard to the lesser's performance or even to their agreement It simply is something that a superior decides to do of his own volition and the inferior party receives it without regard to anything that they do or say or think. In fact, it is granted to them usually outside their presence. They simply get notified later. So that is loving kindness. And that is what we have in any covenant with God, loving kindness, a covenant-keeping God. And he does it for those 
who are in covenant with him as a matter of his character. He says in Exodus 34, this isn't something I choose to do as if I might choose otherwise. This is a part of who I am. Like you don't choose to breathe, right? You breathe, but it's not by choice in the sense that you could stop. Not if you want to stay alive, right? It is a part of who you are. You would express it to someone as a part of how you exist, not as a choice, not as a matter of preference. Similarly, God's character is a part of who he is by his nature. It cannot be changed. He cannot go against it. He cannot do differently than he is. And in his nature, he is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. And Mephibosheth, in this example, is the recipient of David's loving kindness. That is, his keeping of a covenant he established with Jonathan. But notice the form this grace takes. Verse 9 We read on, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth gets an inheritance. Again, no expectation of this. He just shows up and says, everything that your dad once owned is now yours. And secondly, uh, by the way, this makes him instantly a very wealthy man in the tribe of of Benjamin. And then secondly, now this is a crippled man. How's he going to work the land? Well, he gives his servant Ziba and the man's family to Mephibosheth and says, you're going to work the land for him. Now, why did he do this to Ziba? Well, because this is a lesser post, right? He's leaving the court of the king to work the land. I think it's because of two reasons. He had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he had the manpower. But secondly, David trusted him. And now David has a close ally near Mephibosheth. And if so, if that's part of his calculus here, it was a smart strategy because it'll pay off later that Ziba is where he is, for David's sake. We'll deal with that then. Verse 11, we're told Mephibosheth goes from being a dead dog to a son of the king seated at the table, all because of grace. Now, at this point, as we finish with this story and with what we're studying, I'm sure everybody here has already seen the parallels. Let me just run through them for you because I'm certainly not the first guy to notice this or to teach it, but there's a lot of symbolism in this chapter for things that we all have in common. Right? And the parallels start easily enough. David is a picture of Jesus, right? We know that already. And of course, Mephibosheth pictures us. Probably in more ways than you like to admit. First, we are all born an enemy of the king because we are all born from a family that wanted to take the throne. The Bible says we are all descended from Adam, and as such, we share in the nature of Adam from our birth. And when Adam sinned, he rejected God's word, he rejected God's rule, and instead sought to be like God himself by his actions. And that rebellion in the garden became part of Adam's nature, and he passes that nature down to his descendants, and that continues to today. We come into the world with a nature that wants to rebel against God and not be submitted to God. We are, by definition, enemies of God from birth. And so in that sense, we're a lot like Mephibosheth. That is, Mephibosheth was one of Saul's relatives, which made him instantly someone who could compete for the throne of David, and as such, an enemy of David. And if Jesus did what was easiest for him in that respect, what's the easiest thing for Jesus to do to defend his throne from those who might want to take it from him? The easiest thing would be to wipe out all his enemies. Right? To just do away with anyone who had a claim to the throne. And scripture says he has a right to do that. Isaiah 59, 17 says, Jesus put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlines he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. All right, that's just Isaiah giving poetic description to the fact that when Jesus comes, those who stand in opposition to Jesus will not stand for long. But that's what he could do. 
And for those who don't receive him, that's what he will do. But even as he does that, he also remembers those who are in covenant with him. And those who receive his mercy are like dead dogs and are the lame and the crippled, according to Scripture. You know, the Bible describes Gentile believers as dogs. In Matthew 15, 25, the woman comes to Jesus, the Canaanite Gentile woman comes to Jesus, bows down before him and says, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She understood that the Gentiles had a place to play, a role to play in God's plan for Israel, using the term dog to describe all of us. And we are also described in the Bible as dead dogs in the sense of being dead in our sins. Ephesians 2.1 You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Right? But you were also lame or crippled because of a fall that happened to you indirectly, that is of the spiritual fall that comes upon us through Adam, and it left us useless like it did Mephibosheth, Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Spiritually, you were a dog. You're dead. You're useless. That's the state of everyone in humanity before they come to faith. And as such, we truly have no hope to help ourselves, no more than Mephibosheth did, unless and until the king calls us into his presence by his spirit and appoints us in the covenant of grace, to be a son or daughter, as we would say, of God. We come into that moment made possible through a covenant established in a death. In the case of David, it was the death of of Jonathan, but in our case, of course, it's Christ. And without Jonathan's death, in the case of Mephibosheth, he never could have been blessed in this way. That is, Mephibosheth would have been simply a grandson of Jonathan. God, he would have had whatever Jonathan handed down to him. But because he was... Uh, left alone through that death, he was in a position to receive all of the inheritance of Saul, all of the uh, blessing of David at the king's table. And of course, without Christ's death, we would have no covenant either. Another parallel. Finally, coming into our blessing, we come into it because of Christ's faithfulness to his word. And this is perhaps one of the harder things for people to appreciate. What is it about the covenant? Where is Jesus keeping his word? He's not keeping his word to us. That is, we did not enter into the covenant that established our faith in Jesus. We received the benefits of that covenant having it already been established in Christ's blood. The covenant of Christ didn't start with us. It started prior, just like in the case of Mephibosheth. The covenant that David was honoring did not start when Mephibosheth showed up. It had been in place already. Mephibosheth is the receiver of the benefits of the covenant. Those who've been included in the covenant of the Lord are granted an inheritance that was established earlier, originally with what God promised Abraham, later with how he elaborated it to David, ultimately when it was appointed through Israel, to Israel as the new covenant in Jeremiah and fulfilled in Christ's blood on the cross. That covenant was uh, proposed, established, and closed, done for, and blood spilled before any of us were ever born. We're simply being told, we're being called before the king on a given day, the day we say we're saved, and we're being told, by the way, you're a son of God, daughter of God, you have an inheritance, you know, congratulations. And we're saying when we learn that, a dead dog like me, why? And the only answer is because God is faithful to his word. His loving kindness is to his word. His loving kindness then becomes extended to us, that is, we the beneficiary of it, but it goes back to his word, what he said he would do, and it didn't turn on us particularly. He was going to do it. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, and we'll finish with this. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive while we were still dead. And then Paul puts in parentheses in Ephesians 2.5, by grace you've been saved. That's the definition of grace. The definition of grace is, while you were dead, he made you alive because of his great love. And nowhere in there is there any discussion of us participating at any level. And then it goes further, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places as if at his table. And so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
And then Jesus himself says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So what you see in this chapter is David fulfilling his word to Jonathan through a blessing to a man who David didn't even know. And in that, you have a beautiful picture of Christ's faithfulness to us. And the Lord has now turned what was David's mistake at that time of entering into a covenant with Jonathan into something that blesses David and ultimately Mephibosheth, of course. But at the same time, did you notice the one person that David needed in order to fulfill his promise was the one man who could not rival the throne. So God essentially took away the threat while giving opportunity for David to keep his word in a covenant he never should have entered into. Nonetheless, there will be some negative consequences later coming out of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've extended to us in our faith in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the loving kindness that assures us you will keep your word. And Father, help us learn the heart of a man like David who wanted to live the same faithfulness to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.